verses 1 to 27. So as we continue our series in the book of Daniel, we come to a passage that is a favourite for prophecy buffs. The last verses of the chapter have generated a great deal of debate among respected scholars and pastors who don't, don't all come to an agreement on, on what it means. It has been incorporated into charts that depict a series of events that are supposed to happen before the end of time. What I would like to do this morning is not get carried away with the ending that we miss the beginning. In other words, let's concentrate on what we do understand rather than speculate on what we don't. And speak with great conviction on what we do know rather than what we don't. And the beginning... And the main part of this chapter contains one of the most powerful prayers in the Bible, which prepares us for the concluding verses, which are God's answer to Daniel's prayer. So if we can keep that in mind, we should be okay. Now, at the end of this morning, I'm sure that there will still be disagreement, but hopefully we are still friends, okay? So let's look at this verses 1 to 3, which is our introduction. In the first year of Darius, son of Xerxes, a Mede by descent who was made ruler over the Babylonian kingdom, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures, according to the word of the Lord given to the prophet Jeremiah, that the desolation of Israel would last 70 years. So I turned to the Lord and pleaded with him in prayer and petition and fasting and sackcloth and ashes. So we know what, what this is about, that, that historically with the, the death of Belshazzar, remember Belshazzar is the one who saw the writing on the wall, everybody panicked inside because a big party was, was happening, and outside the gates, the... The Persians were already coming. They were threatening the city. Meanwhile, meanwhile, the Babylonians were partying hard. So Daniel is called and he's given an interpretation saying, Belshazzar, your time's up. You're gone. You're done for. The two-horned ram. Remember last week we spoke about the two-horned ram from the last chapter? That was the Babylonians. That was... No, sorry, that, that is the Persians. The two-horned rams are the Persians who took over the Babylonians. So the two-horned ram now is in power. Darius is ruling and Daniel now has to switch bosses. Now he has to serve the new king. Times of uncertainty, tumultuous times of trouble. In these times of uncertainty, what does Daniel do? Well, he panics. You know, he starts reading the newspapers. Starts hiding. No, he doesn't do any of that. What he does do is he reads the scriptures. 
more specifically, he reads the writings of the prophet Jeremiah. And this is quite special when we consider that Daniel and Jeremiah were contemporaries. By that I mean that they lived around about the same time, the weather, the overlapping. While Daniel was taken, as a young man, he was taken to Babylon, Jeremiah the prophet stayed back in Jerusalem. So he continued his prophetic ministry from Jerusalem and he wrote letters that were taken, that were read by the exiles in Babylon. From there, we can see that Daniel took very seriously the writings of the prophet Jeremiah. And Daniel recognised, and this is great to see, that that Daniel recognised Jeremiah's writings as being inspired by God. These weren't just the, the wanderings and the ideas of a prophet. These was what Jeremiah was writing was actually the word of God. Even at this early stage, he recognised that this was a scripture, that this was sacred, given by God. And it's also refreshing to see that even though Daniel received a direct divine revelation from God, with the visions and the interpretations that he received, even though Daniel had this direct connection to God, he still went to the scriptures searching for what God has already revealed. Isn't that great? It's not like, oh God, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? He reads the word of God. And while God can choose to speak to us any way he wants, any way he chooses, his most sure and excellent way is through the scriptures that he has given us. And anything he says to us will not contradict what he has already revealed in the past. So this is why I'm I'm, I'm always concerned when pastors and leaders and others, you know, people say, well, I talk directly to God, I don't need the scriptures. That's stupid. That's wrong. Read the scriptures. And anything that you hear has to be filtered through, confirmed by the scriptures. And by reading Jeremiah, he knew that the exile would last 70 years. And that time is almost up. It's been a while. Jeremiah is an old man now. He's no longer young. So, I suppose the next question we can ask is, why pray when God had already said what he will do? I mean, why? If he's already said he's going to do it, what's the point of praying, right? Well, Jesus taught us to pray Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. We know that God's will will be done. We know that his kingdom is going to come, but we still pray that. That is the desire of our heart. O Lord, that your kingdom will be revealed, that you would come and come quickly, please. And, And prayer actually becomes the avenue 
for God's purpose to be fulfilled in our lives. Through prayer we align our will to his will. We submit to his will in what we do. That's what prayer does. But Daniel believed in the power of prayer. He didn't just pray when times were tough. He prayed when times were good. He consistently prayed. Remember this from earlier in chapter 6? Remember this when Daniel learned that the decree had been, had been published? He went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened towards Jerusalem Three times a day he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God. And get this, just as he had done before. That's chapter 6 verse 10. And it's, it's part of our, his habit, it's part of his communication with God. He couldn't live just like eating, just like breathing. His prayer life was consistent. It wasn't just an emergency, triple O type of communication with God. Just as he had done before. And we tend to see prayer as a last resort. Oh, I guess we've got to pray now, right? No. Make prayer, intense prayer, your habit. And note the words, this is the, it highlights the intensity. He pleaded, he fasted in sackcloth and ashes. I wish the same could be said of us. Either when times are tough or when we have been richly blessed. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we followed his example that is given to us so, so well here? But let's look now at the, let's break down the content of his prayer in verses 4 to 19. I want to say uh, four things here. Firstly, that his prayer is soaked, immersed in worship. He said this, he said, and I'm going to quote a few verses, Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. That's verse 4. The Lord our God is merciful and forgiving. Verse 9. For the Lord our God is righteous in everything he does. Verse 14. Lord, in keeping with all your righteous acts. Verse 16. Bang, bang, bang. One thing after another. He is worshipping God. It is not until verse 17 that he asks for anything, that that he pleads. And when he does petition the Lord, it is just that, please Lord, listen. That's all he pleads. And during prayer, we need to focus. It's good to start our prayer. We need to focus on the greatness, the goodness of God. Tell him who he is to you, what he means to you, what you are thankful for. Praise him. This will get your heart in the right place as you begin connecting with God. And in many ways, and this is a true statement, prayer is the highest form of worship. Remember that. 
Prayer is the highest form of worship. Secondly, he confesses his sin. Listen to this. He says, and I'll read some verses here. We have sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked and have rebelled. We have turned away from your commands and laws. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, our ancestors, to all the people of the land. And then, verse 8, We and our kings, our princes, our ancestors are covered with shame, Lord, because we have sinned against you. And then in verse 13, Just as it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come upon us, yet... We have not sought the favour of the Lord our God by turning from our sins and giving attention to your truth. So, the Lord sends all these disasters and they still didn't turn. In another part of the prophets it says, I've sent the rain, I've sent the drought, I've I've sent disaster and all this, and still you didn't turn. Let me interpret this in a way that we understand. I control the weather. I control the rain. I control the snow. I control the wind. I control everything. I change the climate. There's nothing you can do about it. You can do whatever you want. You can tickle all the edges and stop using your cars, your V8s and all that stuff. means... Nothing. Nothing. Something else. When cancer strikes, when tragedy strikes, it is, a, it is my way to remind you that I am God. I am the giver of life. I give life and I take life. Turn to me when disaster strikes. It is my reminder it is my call, come to me with, his, with a loudspeaker. He's calling us to him. And yet, in so many ways, I say, oh, no. why is this happening? Why is this happening? He's, 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 he's drawing attention to you. He's saying, come to me. And yet we don't. No, no, we're going to get this, we're going to get that. We, no, no, go to the doctor. Yeah, do all of that. But it is behind all of that is God who's saying, Come to me. Listen to this. He says, all this disaster has come upon us, all this disaster, and yet we have not sought the favour of the Lord. Something else here is that he doesn't try to, to blame other Jews, fellow countrymen, for the misery they are in. And, and even as you read Daniel, there is no overt sinful behaviour that is recorded or attributed to Daniel in his book. He actually includes himself in sin and the sin of the people who are with him. He doesn't say they sinned. It's their fault. He says, we have sinned. It's us. Also, he doesn't blame the wicked Babylonians and the wicked Persians. 
today we can try and blame modernism, materialism, socialism. We can blame Canberra. We can blame Macquarie Street. It's always easy, isn't it, to, to push the blame away from us and we are simply the victims of this terrible injustice. No, Daniel said, we have sinned, we have not listened. And we need to be honest. There is very little difference between us and the pagans. The Christian is someone who calls his sin for what it is. It is sin. It is rebellion against God. We have put it before God. We have confessed our sin. We have not tried to excuse it, to cover it up or whatever. The body of believers, God's children are those who come before God, confess their sin and say, I am doomed if it not were for Christ Jesus who died for me. There's no difference between, you know, you could be morally better, maybe you don't do all these things, but deep down, there's no difference. It's only Christ that makes the difference in us. It's all Him. Be honest. The third thing is that he is concerned for the honour of God's name. Lord, in keeping with all your righteous acts, turn away your anger and wrath from Jerusalem, your city, your holy hill. Our sins and the iniquities of our ancestors have made Jerusalem and your people an object of scorn to all of those around us. That's verse 16. And then, 17 to 18, he says, Lord, look with favour on your desolate sanctuary. Give ear, our God, and hear, and hear. Open your eyes and see the desolation of the city that bears your name. So Daniel sees a contrast between the, the glory of God's name in the past during the kingdoms of David and, and Solomon, the, the glory of the temple. It was amazing, right? But look at it now, the, the weakness, the, the destruction associated with, with God's name. Isaiah 48 verse 11, which is part of our first reading this morning. For my own sake, for my own sake, twice he repeats it, I do this. How can I let myself be defamed? I will not yield my glory to another. And Solomon said, The name of the Lord is a fortified tower. We used to sing it. It's a strong and mighty tower. And the righteous run to it and are safe. Well, look around. The name of the Lord doesn't look like a tower when you see so much godliness about A few uh, months ago, there was a video by you know, that singer, whatever he is, Sam Smith, depicting, it was this performance, it was just satanic. It was mocking God, mocking Christians. And you look at it and say, look what they're doing to your name, Lord. 
Look what they're doing to your name. Yet it is something that believers of every generation should cherish the name of the Lord. We tend to worry about our name, our reputation. But what about God's name? When they defame our Lord and Saviour. Every Christian, our very name Christian, bears Christ's name in it. And it is the name that is above every other name. For there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. There is no other name. It is the most precious name that you will know today and that you will know for eternity if you belong to him. And fourthly, this prayer is based on God's character. I love this verse. Um, we, we do not make requests of you because we are righteous. It's not because we are good. There's no goodness in us. We don't come before you because we are righteous, but because of your great mercy. Lord, listen. Lord, forgive. Lord, hear and act. Wow. Now, way back in in Deuteronomy, the Lord pledged to restore and bless his people if they showed corporate repentance, if if the nation repented, right? That's from Deuteronomy chapter 30 and the first 10 verses of Deuteronomy 30. And, And so Daniel knew his scriptures. He knew what God had revealed in the past. He says so. And, 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 and Daniel knew that the end of the 70-year period of exile was just around the corner. But he also knew that the promise of restoration, according to God's word back in Deuteronomy, was contingent on repentance. The people needed to repent in order for God to do what he promised. And Daniel looked around and it wasn't apparent. The people still, you know, lived unrepentant. In fact, they probably got used to living in exile. So this is not too bad. You know, that's fine. We don't need to think about other stuff. So despite the sins of the people, despite all of that, he says, he asked he asked God for extravagant mercy to restore the Jews anyway. His pleas to God aren't based on their own righteousness or, you know, that they deserved. No, they don't deserve anything. He's simply pleading for God to show mercy. There's a story of a, of a, of a mother who once approached Napoleon seeking pardon for her son. And the emperor replied that the young man had committed a certain offence twice, twice, and justice demanded death. But I don't ask for justice, the mother explained. I plead 
or mercy. But your son doesn't deserve mercy, Napoleon replied. Sir, the woman cried, it would not be mercy if he deserved it, and mercy is all I ask for. Well then, the emperor said, I will have mercy, and he spared the woman's son. The character of God, isn't it? Merciful God. You know why he has mercy? Because of his son. Because of Jesus. So how do, how do we come before God? James reminds us, he says, the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. And in and of ourselves, we have nothing to bring before God. Our righteousness is like, like rags, filthy rags. It is only through Jesus that we can come. And they say to me, Paul, you don't deserve to, for God to show mercy. Absolutely right. I don't. I don't deserve for God to forgive my sin. I don't deserve eternity. I don't deserve to be here in front of you. I don't deserve any of this. It is simply a merciful God. And, and, and I love that word, that, those words that, you know, we don't come before you because we are righteous, but because of your great mercy. And that's, a, that's the gospel truth. That is the gospel message right there. You don't deserve salvation. Neither do I. But if you do repent of your sins, if you surrender to Jesus and recognize him as your Lord and Saviour, the promise is yours. Because God is merciful, because he is gracious. It is God's greatness that saves, not our own. That is the gospel message. So in verses 20 to 23, God answers. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and making my request to the Lord my God for his holy hill, while I was still in prayer, Gabriel, the man I had seen in the early vision, came to me in swift flight about the time of the evening sacrifice. He instructed me and said to me, Daniel, I have now come to give you insight and understanding. As soon as you began to pray, a word went out which I have come to tell you. For you are highly esteemed. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Now, I don't know for how long Daniel had been praying. But the answer came while he was still praying. Swiftly, quickly, God answered. And the answer to his prayer did not come as a vision like in the previous chapter. Nor a dream while he was sleeping. It came as a direct message through a messenger, an angel. Gabriel, he's one of the big ones, right? This is the same angel that appeared before in chapter 8 and would later appear to Joseph and Mary. We know what that's all about. 
in the New Testament. And it, and it must have been just absolutely wonderful. He must have been so chuffed when he, when he heard this, you are highly esteemed. Isn't that great? Do you, and I want to ask you personally, do, do you ever see yourself as being highly esteemed by God? That he loves you. How often do you want to be reminded? Do you need Gabriel to come and remind you? By the way, Paul, God loves you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean it. I've come to tell you. Well, why didn't you tell me before? Well, I have. It's in the scriptures. (laughs) I've given you my son, Jesus Christ. What else do you want? Pay for your sins. You are esteemed as as a child and a daughter of God. We are loved. And the Lord wants to answer our prayers. He is eager to do so because he truly loves us. Just like we are more than willing to help our children when they come and ask for, for help, All you had to do was ask. God delights to respond to the prayers of his children. Now let's look at the content of the prophecy. This is where things get a little hairy. Verses 24 to 27. Seventy sevens are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up the vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy place, verse 24. So the context of this prophecy is that Daniel, remember, is praying for the restoration of Israel. And he had to do with the number 70, because 70 is what was prophesied through Jeremiah. So in answering his prayer, Gabriel came to give him insight and understanding. And while he wasn't given an interpretation like he was given an interpretation in the, in the previous chapter, we know that he had something to do with the future of Israel. So as we look at this difficult passage, we also need insight and understanding that desperately lacking at the moment. And I'm not going to give you all the possible interpretations that this passage has been given because that will be more confusing than helpful. And it's, you know, got to do with whether you're pre-tribulation, mid-tribulation, post-tribulation. And if you've read any of the Left Behind books with Tim LaHaye and all of that, you'll probably, you know, I know which camp you belong to. So it, it's, it does sort of become confusing. I like the words of Alastair Begg, Scottish pastor, who said, these words are here for our comfort, not our calendar. Our comfort, not our calendar. So we need to remain open with the understanding that sincere believers disagree on the interpretation of this text. But I will present one view that I believe best fits the context of the passage and of redemptive history. doesn't mean that I know it all, that I've got it perfectly in all this, because I'm, you know, I'm just 
reading what I have read and, and come to some sort of understanding from all the stuff that is out there. So this is verse 25. Now I understand this, that from the time the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler comes, there will be seven sevens and 62 sevens. It will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. At first, Gabriel tells him what is going to happen in 70 periods of seven or in 490 years. In 490 years' time. That's a long time away. The angel then proceeds to divide that 490 years in three uneven parts. Firstly, let's look at the, in verse 25, the, the, the seven sevens. The seven sevens is 49. 49 years. This is the, during this 49 year period, King Cyrus will issue a decree for the exiles to return and rebuild Jerusalem, the walls, the temple. But he doesn't, when they get back, things don't all go their way. You can read about this in the book of Ezra, Nehemiah, Haggai, Zechariah. There you go. There you, there's your homework. Go read about that. And this is why it's called, in, in verse 25, it is called times of trouble. Now for me today, I'm not looking forward to the restoration of Jerusalem. I, my own position is I'm not looking forward to the rebuilding of the temple. I know there are fellow believers who are just waiting for the temple to be rebuilt in Jerusalem because that's going to start a whole. And, and I respect that. I understand it. I hear you. But the way I read Revelations, the book of Revelation, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, a whole new Jerusalem. Secondly, secondly, there is, this is followed by a period of 62 sevens in verse 25. These are 400, so you've got to add the 49 to 434 years, which adds up to 483 years. So 434 plus 49, 483. So these, these, these 434 years are the quiet years between the prophet Malachi and the book of Matthew, between the Old Testament, that quiet period, between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New, when no prophets were sent by God. So those years take us right up to when the silence is broken, when John the Baptist began to preach, preparing the way for the Anointed One. And another name for the Anointed One is the word Messiah. That's what he means. Finally, the other seven, verses 26 to 27. After 62 sevens, the Anointed One will be put to death and will have nothing. The people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end and desolations have been decreed. He will confirm a covenant with many 
1.7, in the middle of the seven, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering and at the temple he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. This is, a, this is the, an intense period in history. This is, if you look back in history, in all of the years since the creation of the universe until today, this would have to be the most intense period in redemptive history. So much is happening. From the incarnation of Jesus to his starting to preach his ministry to his death and resurrection and ascension, this, this is about as intense as it gets. It says here, firstly, that the anointed one, the Messiah, will be put to death and will have nothing. Verse 26. He is cut off. He is he cries out from the cross, Father, why have you forsaken me? He is the, the, the rejection because of our sin. And yet by his death, he will put an end to the, to the Old Testament, to the Levitical sacrifice and offering, verse 27, through his death, right? That's what the book of Hebrews is about. And a new covenant with many, verse 27, will be confirmed through his shed blood. And this is, this is a, a remarkable specific prophecy that should excite our faith as we read this because, of, yes, 500 years before these things happened, Daniel was told what was going to happen. And it happened 2,000 years ago when Jesus came and lived and died and rose again. From that point on, scholars do not agree on who is this ruler who will come and destroy the city and the sanctuary. And each interpretation, even my own, has, doesn't fill in all the gaps and interprets everything that you probably want to hear. No interpretation is, is, is fully t- watertight in that sense. But I believe the traditional view which refers to the destruction to the city of Jerusalem by the Roman Emperor uh, Titus in AD 70. He destroyed the city. This is about 30, 35 years after Jesus. Titus came in. He destroyed the city, flattened the temple, erected a statue of Jupiter on the site. So he repeats the sin of Antiochus IV, which we spoke about Antiochus Epiphanes that we spoke about last week in chapter 8. And it's interesting that Jesus, as he was coming towards Jerusalem, he knew all this. He's God, right? Jesus comes and looks at Jerusalem and what does he do? He weeps. He wept over Jerusalem. Remember the words. Let's read it. It says, For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another on you. Because, what's the reason? Because you did not know the time of your visitation. What visitation is that? 
the saviour of the world came and was born and lived and preached and did all these miracles among you and yet you put him on the cross you punished him you, you, you did not know the time of your visitation and that brings condemnation we look back we have no excuse because we know what, what's happened in history that he has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ and, and if God was right then God said it was going to happen it happened just as he said and he's saying history has, it's, 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 it's not over yet because he's going to come again and we're going to look at that following passages then if he was right about then he's going to be right about the future so don't, don't claim ignorance here don't say you were never told so let's bring it to a close there's just a couple of points some final lessons here firstly the importance of prayer let's get back to prayer When we come to God with the right attitude and with an open and contrite heart, the Lord is eager to answer our prayers because we are esteemed, we are loved. We are in that relationship. But you need to be in that relationship with God. If you haven't done so yet, I urge you, I plead with you to consider your standing before God. Repent of your sins. Come to the Saviour, accept him as Lord and Saviour and you will be saved. That's not my promise, that's what the Bible says. The importance of prayer. Secondly, the central figure in all of history is Jesus. We here, we've just been reminded of, of the importance of his life, his death, his resurrection... And the reason no one can come to God except through him is because he is the only one who can break the power of sin, atone for guilt and make us right before God. His work on the cross changed everything and his resurrection confirmed it. He is victorious. He is not in a tomb. He is not on a cross. He is alive and he's coming back again. So I plead with you, don't, don't get lost in the minor details of how the future is going to play out. Don't get lost in that. Rather, get lost in the wonder of our God who is merciful and just. Get lost in the wonder of his love for you. Amen.